It's a new season, but the Broken Boys are back. We are here to discuss season three of our favorite British crime show, Luther. And joining me, the gang is all here, starting with Philip Mozilak. I like the dark stuff. Eric Scott. Justin Ripley, you sneaky boy. Jason Johnson. Guys, we're going to do this right, yeah? People might be listening. And, of course, Sean Chibley. I'll do you one better. Why is Luther? <laughs> That's too soon. You can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> so, we are now little over halfway into our foray of the BBC show Luther. Again, we are leading up to the unveiling of season five, which comes out later on this calendar year. And when we last left Luther, we got through season two, and season three is another four-episode arc, which we had predicted at the end of our last episode that we were going to see, hopefully, some things going in a forward direction for John. As opposed to where we left him at this time last season where he really had hit rock bottom and things were looking as bleak as they had been, obviously coming out of all the traumatic events of his inaugural season one. So, why don't we start here from the opening, guys, because we get John Luther as a man who is not necessarily lost, but as a guy who is just back to work doing what he does cleaning up greater london and right at his hip is our is our boy justin ripley so how do we get this opening because when we had season two it was alice talking with shank alice isn't here at least not in this open how did you guys take this foray into the new season um i liked it despite it being nothing like i anticipated um I actually feel that while this this episode arc was kind of heavy, it was also pretty um, straightforward. If that makes any sense, like it was it was a real crime. And let me just say, the crimes that are committed in these first two episodes are dark. The way in which this is set up is probably it feels, and it might be the way it's shot, but way more brutal and actually has. A tenseness to it. Yeah, um, I, I I just gotta say that intro scene where the guy comes out from under the bed. Yes, that right, I don't yeah. know if I love it or hate it because it's it looks creepy, but sometimes it just looks like Clayface is coming out. <laughs> These two episodes have the best angle work that I can yes. think of seeing on the show. I that that jumped out at me right away. That I just really enjoyed the the cinematography and the angle work they used on these episodes. Yeah, because you could tell kind of like from where they were showing it from underneath the bed, you know, oh, there's got to be somebody under the bed. And then when he slides out, I'm like, ah. <laughs> yeah, And the just, way he comes out is like buttery smooth, and it's almost got like a B-movie feel to it. Like, like we should have been anticipating this, and I still wasn't. And when he comes out, yeah, it is a little like, like clay-facey, like, ah, and he just stands there. Yeah, that that intro... You know, for all the talk that we have in in not even just Luther, but in a lot of movies, especially nowadays, when you're looking at thrillers where directors and writers are aiming for the jump scare and they set up the jump scare and they point you in a direction where, you know, you're going to have to anticipate a jump scare. 
in this one, yeah, as as you guys stated, you know, you have a woman, Emily Hammond, she's coming home, she's going to bed, and we get the glimpses both under the bed and also over the shoulder. And you see that she's kind of distressed about something, but there's no real indication as to what. Mm-hmm. And she's curled up in bed, and then you get that beat. And I think the beat is what ultimately sells it, because everything is still, nothing is moving, and then you get the movement under the bed, and the and the guy, Paul Ellis, our, our suspect here in the A-plot, is not a small man. No. And how he manages to cram himself under that bed, and as you said, Moe, slide himself out quietly enough that he does not give any indication that he was ever there. And then he's just standing there looming over, and the last thing we get before the cut is her opening her eyes, because if anybody, especially if, you know, who all doesn't own a... If you own a cat, you know this. Or if you own a dog, you know this. Or if you have kids, you know this. You're asleep, you're trying to go to bed, and somebody's in there staring at you, and your inclination, even though you're out, is to go, what's going on? By by the way... Um, if these two episodes taught me anything, it's that all women in England get ready for bed the exact same way. <laughs> yeah, there there is a bit of uh, of of uh, continuity there that I'm not sure is entirely accurate. But well, it's cultural. Just please don't try to appropriate it. Yes, absolutely. So I mean, you know, I, we... I'm not going to tell you what order to put your bras on, but still, <laughs> right. We do get a little bit, while this is going on, we do get a little bit of closure from season two, as far as John goes, because we find out that John's in a new place. He's not in that same ratty old hole that he was in in season two. And he goes home, and he's looking at the pictures in his flat. And, of course, there's the one of Zoe. There's that picture that Jenny gave him last season of David Bowie, but as we find out, there's no Jenny to be found in this episode, in these two episodes. So it's, and and that is left very, very open-ended. We have no real, it's very ambiguous. Yeah. Um, You know, but the way he looks at that picture, to me, kind of indicates, okay, well, Jenny's moved on to something else, but I think it was kind of the look of, okay, well, she's all right. But then it pans to the mantle next to his bed, and you see all these postcards of, was it Monaco? And there's a lot of places with M's on it. And right in the middle is one that says Meep Meep. And we know who's sending him those postcards. Yeah, yeah I wasn't expecting the Alice uh, introduction. Well, I should say, shouldn't say introduction, but at least tag. Um, in that way, but it was a good use of no no dialogue, and here's exposition in a visual way. So one thing I'm still unsure of is, like, in the Luther universe, how much time transpired between seasons, um, between the seasons, right? Like, so, like, how far out from Zoe's death is Luther right now? Is he a year, two years, three years? And I honestly yeah, have no idea. Because the only Zoe, real reference you have is the the when the fact that Justin says he started working with him in two thousand nine, right? So that's kind of yeah. the only date that's ever really given. Well, yeah, and, I, and and our and our girl Erin Gray has a new title, which sounds a few steps up from where she was. So yeah, I, I don't did you know? And it seemed like she got her wrist slapped at the end of season two 
So I don't see her like just being promoted like the week after. But it, no. um, it, I, I, so I, I guess a year ish. Yeah, I think you figure it was, you know, when we left the end of season two, they were in kind of the, you know, I would say mid to late winter, um, you know, because it's cold, even though they were sitting there eating ice cream at the end. Um, you know, everybody was kind of bundled up. And now I would suspect they're probably coming out of like late summer or, or sometime in the fall of the following year. Because climactically, there are points where, you know, it's kind of colder, um, you know, and Britain is always kind of cold and gray anyway. But, um, you know, it looks like there's been at least, I would say, at least six to ten months has passed, is my guess. Somewhere in that in that vicinity. So it's not like a week later, season three starts up. Um, there definitely has been a buffer. So, um, you know, really quick to, to kind of get into the crux of the A-plot here. This guy, Paul Ellis, the way that he is killing people rings a bell to an older murder that was unsolved. And as as Luther and Ripley are going to investigate this, Shank steps in and pulls John, excuse me, pulls John aside and says he's been forced, we don't know by who, to move John to another case. And Luther doesn't like it. And, you know, he tells him, you know, it smells funny. You know that, right? And Shank's like, yeah, but his hands are tied. So what are you going to do? And Justin and John go to check this out. And that leads us into the B-plot. And as Moe's alluded to, the B-plot is, in this season, it looks like, Aaron Gray's mission to take down John Luther. What were your impressions of that part? Yeah, so do you think um, Shank knew there was an IA investigation, or did they just kind of come up down the chain saying, "Hey, here's another case you have to work on"? And it, 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 even if he didn't know, he knew. I mean, it's not. Yeah, I mean, he used to work in that department, so maybe he right. Kind of yeah, that was but, that was his job previously, right? But was... orders from on high saying, you know, run your unit this way. It doesn't seem to be the norm, so. Uh-huh. Well, and and let me just ask this because this is this is where I was putting on my Luther coat. Um, they say they have an eyewitness to John being dirty because eventually uh, Ripley is brought in and and they say, "Look, we got blood on coming out of his old flat." And the only eyewitness that we would have is what's her face, Jenny. And Jenny's mom seems to be powerful in some capacity. And I wonder if somehow Jenny flipped. Maybe not wanting to, but that's... It's like we're going to burn him a different way. I think we've seen the last of Jenny. I think they were... Um... Like I don't think she's going to be a major factor going forward. Yeah, I don't. I'm, I don't think so either. I think, but in my head canon, that's how they can get here. Mm-hmm. I think it was just a ruse to get uh, Ripley to to flip. Right. Well, and yeah. to help that along, Aaron has some help Ugh. from this guy who he says he's a retired cop, and then later says he's part of DSU. Which I am still not quite sure of the nomenclature on that, but I'm assuming that is something along the lines of what you're looking for in another IA sort of person. And actually, as I'm looking at it, 
DSU is Detective Superintendent. So he's actually above both John and Gray. He's of the same rank as Schenck is uh, in the police force. So he's a big man on high. His name is George Stark, and he is not somebody you want to really mess around with, as Ripley finds out early on. And he's played by David O'Hara, who is awesome in virtually everything he does you know you've you've seen him in especially the departed i mean just i mean he's he is a great thug bad guy i didn't realize until you sent us the link mo's that he is mad steven in braveheart yes he's the irishman he's the one i can't be killed you know god can get me out of this i'm pretty sure you're fucked yes (laughs) i didn't realize that was david o'hara but he's an ama- amazing actor. He 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 exudes intimidation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and when Ripley stands his ground to Stark, he finds that out because Stark chokes him, just wraps his arm around, him, drags him right out of the chair, and just gives him the riot act. And see, this and you is can where see I Gray's some... not happy about it. Right. That's. I was going to say this is where I kind of feel that that it's interesting from Gray's standpoint because she's going along with this guy. But yet he embodies the same problems she had with Luther. Mm-hmm. Everybody so, yeah. in this season so far has this weird, like it's almost like Luther is a virus. They all are 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 utilizing what Luther does to their own ends. In a in in some ways, Stark is the the counter Luther, but he has the same kind of powers as Luther. Um, in intimidation. I mean, look, he choked Ripley, and John also sends a guy off of um, the side of a flat to uh, brace him and to get information. I mean, they all have, you know, Luther has infected the entire kind of police squad with his, his, his the way in which he does work. Right. The, the interesting issue in that is how... Uh, Stark and Gray, I keep wanting to say Shank because they're so similar, how Stark and Gray view Luther's tactics as dirty, mm-hmm. yet how what they're doing, trying to turn Justin and giving them this Jared Cass case as a test case for John, that is okay. This, even though, as we find out, it's not entirely sanctioned what they're doing. But that's okay because their aim is to get John, and they figure if they get John, then all is right with the world. And John's counter to that is, hey, we're all basically drinking from the same well here. Right, because and, uh, towards the end, they, they actually you know, go into his apartment or home, house or whatever, you know, without a warrant or whatever, and then just start looking around. Like, you know, you know they're, they're playing on the same side he is. Yeah. They just, they, they just think they're higher and better than he is. Right, but that crosses Gray into the same territory that got her started on her crusade against um, yeah, Luther. This this uh this kind of rubbed me the wrong way because like in season two it seemed like Gray had a problem with like Luther breaking the rules. Right. Like but now she has a problem with Luther. Which is a very different thing. Oh, like it's like it's a personal vendetta. Yeah. She's lived long enough to become the villain, right? So Yeah. Well, well and you can see that in the way that she the way she regards Luther. And I mean it, the links she went to 
catch him. Like, I mean, like one step shy of literal prostitution. Right. Right. But when you have, when you have somebody in gray who, and she says it, she goes, you know, when, when she's trying to talk to, to Justin to try and start turning him, she says right out, she goes, what I am is better than him. And she's so smug about it. She's mm-hmm. so just finch clenchingly smug that that as as somebody who understands John and and what he where he's been, what he's gone through, and most of all how he views doing his job, you know, it's one of those that as a character you just I'm waiting for somebody to just come up and smack that smugness right off of her face, not necessarily physically, but just. You know, just in a way that shows her that she is not nearly as good a person or as smart a person as she thinks she is because she wants to undervalue Luther as a way of catching him. And something else that just strikes me, um, uh, I can forgive um, the the, the DSC guy for wanting to turn... um, Oh, Stark? Ripley. Yeah, Stark, for wanting to turn Ripley, right? But Grey should have known that that was not going to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I yeah, think there was a little was... bit of worry. There was definitely worry, like, ooh, you just, you, you, went, you went too far, and now you've crossed a path where this guy is not going to work with us. Yeah. Well, I mean, even from the get-go, she knows about Luther and uh, Ripley's relationship, like... I mean, it it just seems like a very bad judge of of character, right? But I think it comes back to the idea that because now she's an IA, or as Ripley so aptly puts it, the Judas division, uh, that she thinks she's got a leg up on both of them. And now that she understands both of them, and she's seen how both of them work, she's trying to play it up where she can not necessarily get. Ripley or punish him in some way, although when they first meet up, she does point out that if she could punish Justin, she would, because she's still bitter about the fact that he was the one that ended up bailing John out with what happened on Shank's computer. But I think it, it's that if she sees John as the head of the snake, you take that off, then, you know, Justin can go back to being a decent person, and it doesn't matter because John got what was coming to him. So, at this point now, John is being asked to balance both cases. He's got to figure out this one that that Gray uh, and and Stark forced Shank to give him, and this one with Paul Ellis, which, again, echoes back to an old case from the 80s called the Shortage Creeper case. Nobody was caught, and the cop in charge of that investigation was this guy, Ronnie Holland, who had retired, and Shank goes to visit Ronnie, and he's dead. And it wasn't those where he would just keeled over. They find out that somebody killed him. So now they've got to figure out what's going on with that one and go to this case, Jared Cass, which to to Luther seems very meat and potatoes because it's this guy who was an internet troll who had been found in his apartment. He'd been suffocated to death, strapped to a chair, and then his apartment got gang-tagged. I looked. I remember seeing that going, what the hell did they do to his apartment? And yeah. it's spray-painted everywhere, and all of his stuff is gone. So 
why don't we start with the A plot and and kind of work our way there, and then we'll get back to Jared, uh, the sad case of Jared Cast, because this one, and again, it, it, it's Neil Cross, to his credit, does come up with ways to make, make some fairly creepy antagonists for John to bump up against. And this guy, Paul Ellis, is like the brothers in at the end of season two. He doesn't say anything through this whole episode. Everything that, that this guy does, we have to watch him do visually. And as I alluded to, I mean, that's not an easy thing for an actor to, to be able to do, but he's got to emotionally portray everything that he's got going on. And this guy clearly has some issues because he goes home to his apartment and he's got all these cutout faces on the wall and he's got trophies from all the people that he's killed. So, I mean, what do we make of this guy? Well, I mean, he's got, he, and, and I think it's interesting you brought up the twins from last season because he has two sides to him. And, like, uh, especially when he goes to visit, you know, hopefully not going too far here, but when he goes to visit the original criminal, the one that had been um, good for the uh, the original in the, in the 70s and 80s, he is in a disguise, and you know I didn't even recognize him at first glance. Like I was like, I don't. This isn't the same guy. And then I realized, oh, geez, he's even wearing a wig. I mean, and then I talked about it last episode. He does the creepiest thing, and it's off-putting to people. He walks without moving his arms when he's in that character. And yeah, I was going to mention that 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 walk just stood right out to me that he. I, t- I told you that to was a real thing. Yeah, and it, and it's just a, a kind of a lumbering walk, and people just kind of stay out of his way. But he also doesn't make eye contact with anybody. He's so fixated on just what's in front of him that he's almost machine esque. He's almost like a golem in that regard. You know, the old man gives him instructions, and he goes out and, and carries them out. Um, and we find this out because as they look further into the creeper case, they're finding out that the connection to the first woman he killed in her bed was back to this original case. And it was in the early eighties where Emily Hammond lived in a house with her mother and a man was in her room one night and they had a lodger in the apartment. They came home. She had a couple of guys with him. They find this guy in the room. They rough him up, but he gets away, and Emily's spared. But it sounds like what Paul's having to do is clean up after what this guy did way back when. And they find out who the lodger is, and she's older, and she's married, and she lives somewhere else. And again, we get this buildup where there's not a whole lot going on, but it's still shot from the angle of you know we can we're we're a fly on the wall understanding that what's behind us is something very big and very lethal waiting to pounce uh speaking of big and lethal is this the one where it's the husband and wife that he kills yep boy talk about like almost like horror movie level crazy of right. of suspense and then he puts his head through the ceiling mhm Oh, and then that, slits that, 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 that his throat. Yeah, yeah. 
It was after he puts him through the ceiling, he drags him back up, and you see him do the long pull across his throat with the knife. And, and yeah, that took... I clocked it out. That took almost ten minutes to build up. Where wow. it was just husband and wife. I guess it looked like they had friends over, and they were cleaning up and doing what couples do, getting ready for bed and, you know, all that. And the only tick was is they couldn't find the cat. So the husband's going out trying to find the cat. They can't find the cat anywhere. And then they hear this thump up in the attic. And, uh-oh. And, of course, he goes up to look, and that's when everything unfolds. So, you know, while they're trying to... And, and the the really bad part about it is, is that because they had been given this other case with Jared Cass, we're going to find this throws a big wrench into... Luther's plot to be able to stop this guy before anybody else got killed after the first woman. Because Jared Cass had gone ahead and had trolled out this young woman who we don't really know too much about on her memorial site online. And they find this out after they go get a laptop from this guy who Moe's alluded to. Luther roughs up a little bit. To the point where he takes him and chucks him over the railing of the industrial flat that they're in. And they, you know, Gray is on the ground. She's snooping. And Justin is there. And he knows what's going on. And he's been told, hey, anything that comes up, you have to let us know. Well, and he's got a wire. Yeah, he's got a wire. And he also understands that he's watching the guy that they want to catch. And the last thing he really wants is for Luther to get caught. Right. He's yeah, muffling yeah, the wire, right? He's he's actually yeah. holding it so it can't hear. Yeah, and he tried to actually kind of warn Luther, like, you know, hey, you never know who's listening or whatever. It's you know, kind of veiled, like, hey, I'm wired, you know. But Yeah, yeah, and he keeps asking about how, you know, don't you want to get this done right? And he goes, Of course I want to get it done right, but we we also gotta get it quick because we got a much bigger situation going on. And Luther, even though he knows something is up on it. You know, it's the he's having to balance out between what's more important, stopping Paul Ellis or figuring out this case. And once he goes, once they go and visit this girl's parents, it becomes very, very clear, very, very quickly that the resolution of this one is a lot more cut and dry than the plot with with Paul Ellis. But. It's still going to linger enough that now that's going to be the, the the wedge that starts seeming to pull the once insurmountable tandem of Ripley and Luther asunder. You know, how did you take how this started to kind of put that divide in motion? Well, yeah, I mean, I'll go ahead, Sean. I was going to say that um, Ripley, you know, Ripley makes the father pretty much right away right um and uh wants to like go about proving it and luther is taking a a more measured approach and i think that got ripley thinking that um luther was kind of condoning a vigilante killing yeah and that is kind of why ripley started to like you know, I mean, that was a cutting a corner or, you know, roughing up a bookie is one thing, but condoning 
actual murder is an entirely different thing, you know? Right, because they, they, they allude – Aaron says something to the effect of, he, you know, he's using his own brand of justice. Now, I didn't make the husband or, or the father straight away. That That didn't occur to me. No, but the way that they explain it when they're sitting down and talking with him and how the dad is talking about how, you know, once the trolling started, it was for it started off being just, you know, he was defacing the website and then he started getting emails from his dead daughter. And then he started receiving doctored pornographic photos with her face on it. It just kept ramping up and ramping up and ramping up. And you see how he's trying to keep his composure in all this. Right. Okay. And then he goes upstairs and then he breaks down. And, and I, I will give that actor credit. Um, uh, Lucian was, um, Samadhi who played the dad about how, as soon as he walks in that door and he hears it shut, he just like keels over because he's right there. Because obviously you're talking to a dad who's one lost his little girl and two, this is this isn't a psychopathic guy. This wasn't something. I mean, yeah, if you think about means, motive, and opportunity, sure, he planned it out, he carried it out, get it. But this guy isn't a hardened criminal. And and, and understanding that the police are sitting there asking him about it, knowing what that's the the ramifications were such that I think that when that finally all hit him when he got up there, and sure, he just broke down, and. Oh. and and that Luther went up there and was just like, he doesn't say anything. He just sits with him and just like, I get it. Because um, if you remember, something that was pretty telling was um, father asked if they wanted any water and Ripley says no. And then John sensing that he was about to break down, gave him the dignified uh, out. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because yeah, it, 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 it seemed like he was trying to protect, I don't want to say protect the father, but. He was empathetic. Yeah, he was empathetic. It's it almost like I could see where Justin maybe thought, well, he's letting him get off the hook with, you know, we, we, we both know he probably killed this guy. He, he doesn't seem to care. You know, and that, that probably maybe started what I thought is when Justin started to go over to the side of uh, um, Stark and, and Gray. So, well, yeah, I'll say this is the first time in Luther we've encountered a murderer that was not a monster. Yeah. Yeah, I could go for that. I mean, I, I don't have children, let alone a daughter, but I can't imagine. You can get in his shoes. I Like, I mean, I know some of you are fathers, I, but I can't imagine the rage that that would. Uh... Right. And and to be fair, his his daughter, as far as we know, did not die under dubious circumstances. She had epilepsy. So. You know, she died as the result of an illness. So, I mean, not to not to suggest that that minimizes the trauma or the pain of somebody losing a child in any stretch, because that's absolutely not the case. But, you know, when when you have somebody who who passes away of that nature, as opposed to somebody being brutally killed, you know, and then have somebody come in and start trolling that that person, you know, that rage that is gets channeled to that person. And they um, interrupted the grieving. They interrupted the grieving process, right? And he was never able to finish grieving because it, it, every time he'd start to heal, it would dredge back up and be, make it worse. Absolutely. And, I mean, and the abject cruelty of the uh, troll. Like, I mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 this guy was like a really, yeah, just vile, nasty, and yeah. I mean, you can see 
you know, that the guy just snapped. It's like, well, I, I, you know, he probably found him somehow. And yeah, just. Yeah. In all honesty, if it hadn't been a murder, like if he had just severely beaten him, I could have seen uh, Luther looking the other way. Yeah. Right. I mean, if anything, I think, you know, not to, to, and I'm not a lawyer, so I mean, it's not like I'm about to, to you know, I'm, this is purely speculation on my part. But to me, you know, if this was something that would come up here in the U.S., you know, I don't, I can't imagine there would not be a defense attorney anywhere who would not look at this and say it was a crime of passion. Well, and as, I mean, as okay. to say, you know, look, look at the circumstances, look at what this guy did, you know. And this is one of those times where I think the U.S. and the U.K. culture, um, kind of clashes a bit, mm-hmm. because you know, um, in America, this kind of this idea of cowboy up, yeah, you know, and I mean, it's it's more culturally understood. Like if this guy went to trial in the United States, odds are there would be protests in favor outside. of his release. Yeah, in favor of his release, okay. or at least his uh, right. Like I mean, you could totally see that, especially like in Texas or something, right? Right. Well, if I mean, he got he, charged, right? Yeah. Well, he'd yeah. get charged. He would have to get charged, but right. And I think for Luther's perspective, it's okay if you weigh the two cases. You know, yes. All all signs point to Ken Barnaby, the dad, being the one who killed Jerry Cass. Okay, yeah, he's not going to kill as, anyone else. Yeah, as we've alluded to, he's not a murderer. He's concerned about his wife, who is also sick. You know, he under he just wanted justice for his daughter. Okay, whereas Paul Ellis is a guy who is going to keep doing this. He's a machine mm-hmm. in motion, and he is not going to stop. Ken Barnaby can wait. To me, that's Luther's mindset. Doesn't mean he doesn't want to arrest him, but it's, again, it's that empathetic side of him going, look, I know you did something terrible. I'm not going to enjoy putting you in jail, but as a cop, I have to. And even when he does get the, like, you know, when Ripley gets the fingerprint from the SIM card and things are lining up, even then, like, you know, Luther's like, wait a minute. We can give him time. We can give him till the morning, at least, to come in and give us uh, a ruling out fingerprint. Of course, that starts something else in motion. But, you know, it's like he's just trying to give the guy not necessarily a break, but we don't have to go in there freaking full cocked and with command presence and pull this guy out of his house. There's a way we can do it that it keeps it. Uh, quote unquote civil. Well, again, Luther is trying to protect that man's dignity. Like yes. he's not, he's right. not trying to protect him, but he's trying to let him. Like he knows that when he gets in, he'll probably be arrested, but he'll be arrested at the police station. Right, like. Yeah, I mean, he's not a flight risk. He's not going to leave the country or flee. Yeah. He, you know, and it's, it's not like he was going to basically, well, maybe not go to the. You know, police well, station the next day, but yeah, as we right. found out a little bit later, which was kind of nasty. Right. Well, and, and, and also, it. and also, it kind of gives him a chance to have that interaction be away from the wife, because just like when the guy had the breakdown and Luther gave him an escape, you know, to leave mm-hmm. the room and not mm-hmm. be emotional in front of his wife. If he comes into the police station and they arrest him there, he's not being arrested at home in front of her. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, I, I do honestly believe if. Luther had even the slightest inkling that uh, he would do what he ended up doing. Yeah, and we might as well go there because, you know, we do find out that, that you know, he wants to bring Ken Barnaby in. 
uh, Ripley does. And Luther says, okay, I'll take care of it. And he calls him up and says, you know, hey, look, you know, come in tomorrow morning, give us your prints. You know, we're going to have to deal with this, but, you know, do it on your time. We're not going to haul you in. We're not going to send SL-19 in. Just come do it. And how does he respond? He goes upstairs, leaves his wife again, goes up to the kitchen. And we watch him go through the process of putting a blender together, taking the lid off. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing we know, he comes in, Justin comes in, and there is blood everywhere. Yeah. This, but let me just say this. This is one of, I don't, I have a few bugaboo kind of not phobias but things that i'm very careful about and things that set me into like just you know pull me pull my guts in one of them is hands being cut and especially inside like a blender or more specifically the garbage disposal like i'm Mm. really like i don't want anybody near when i'm going into the garbage disposal which i do Mm -hmm. quite often I don't, and I've told my girls, like, uh, you need to step behind me because I don't want anyone near the switch. Oh, so I'm right there with you. I am right there with you. Did you end up finishing Jessica Jones? I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, because if you you hate that scene, you Uh, you see Jessica Uh, Jones, you you will freak the hell out. (laughs) I thought we were going to get, I thought it was going to go there. And the edit was, again, the editing is so tightly done in this it gave me just enough to be like, and just yeah. in that gut punch. Yeah, well, I, had, like, I had the same reaction, like chills. and like Because <laughs> yes. you know, I, I can see myself doing the same thing by accident. And yeah, it's like, right. Mm-hmm. The thing's going and full speed. that required like a graphic yes. uh, flitting throat. And that was fine. I watched that fine. I, I But I cringed and turned away at that point. Why is that? Right. Why is that? Be- because it's it's the, again, it's your mind filling in the blanks. It's it's that old thing that goes back to to Scarface where everybody freaked out when they got to the chainsaw scene, even though you don't see anything other than a splash of blood. Your mind fills in the blank, yeah, and you just cringe because it's so just unsettling and, to us. And everybody, like anybody who's used a blender or garbage disposal, has probably <laughs> at one point in time feared yeah. that exact thing. Yeah. Right? Well, like, and, Exactly. I'm, it's the like, empathetic like said, kind of approach, right? Yeah, I'm right there. When my son was maybe two, three years old, we've been outside. We come back into the house and we're washing our hands. And, you know, it's like most little kids. You're up on a step stool. You're washing your hands. And my son just even made a motion to put his hand towards the opening of the garbage disposal. And I snapped at him to the point where I, I made him cry and it broke my heart to do it. But I told him later, I was like, you know, I'm not angry with you. I said, what I need you to understand is that it just how dangerous it is. Yeah. Because and and that was the first. And like I said, Moses, I'm right there with you because that is just such a terrible way to injure yourself. It's just. Yeah, I think we all agree now um, that garbage disposal switches should have that two key system from nuclear submarines. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And launch codes. And launch codes. Sir, turn your key. Room, right? yeah. <laughs> Three, yeah. two, one. Yeah. Although I need voice yeah. identification. <laughs> yeah, and, and I don't know. I mean, Michael Madsen being who he is, I, I still don't know if I would turn that key. But, um, 
you know, uh, on a criminal level, like on on the the crime level, Ripley is concerned that the his hand being mutilated will cause uh, a degree of um, I forget how he phrased it, um, but it, it, it's like that that benefit of a doubt that a defense attorney would use. Yeah. Yeah. Reasonable doubt. Yeah, reasonable doubt. There it is. But again, yeah. it, I mean, it isn't as hard as a fingerprint, but it's still pretty freaking damning. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, but I guess as long as one person doesn't think that was the case, then I mean, then he, he gets off. So, or I like, I did it I, because I, I didn't want. I didn't yes, want so anybody to think I, I could know, do it. But, yeah. Right, but if it's enough to con- convince a sympathetic judge that you know they should either let him go or go lightly on him, then a defense but, attorney is going to do that. But again, I mean, a, a single fingerprint is also not super strong evidence. No, but the big thing that comes out of this is that clearly when Justin walks in and sees what happened in the state of Ken Barnaby's kitchen, that rightly pisses him off. And to- and, and as... He gets back to the station as Luther is on the phone trying to get in touch with that husband and wife going, hey, I think something is up here. You know, we want to send people over. And they're literally the husband. And of course, because it's television, husband picks up the phone and he hears the argument. And Justin just rears off and punches Luther, which I never thought we'd ever see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Shank has to step in and send them both home. And that one act ends up leading to having two more victims in this case because if and, and Luther makes that very, very clear to Justin when they get to that scene. And so that's Lu- the first time I've ever seen Luther give Justin the cold shoulder for anything, and he gives it to him hard. So Luther seems to have a big problem with people who want conversation while he's in the process of saving someone's life. That seems can't imagine why. That seems to be a recurring theme in this show. Like, like if you let talk, me do my thing, if you let every, me talk for five more seconds, I will save someone's life. But no. Is this the defining yeah. moment of why, essentially, then Ripple Ripley is okay with turning on him? Is That's you know because what I thought I, I thought that was like the final straw in, in I think Ripley's it is mind. because at that point he goes to Stark and just says you're right somebody's got to stop him yeah okay, okay. because okay. he can't see he doesn't see John the way he did before you know Justin's older now he's more experienced he's been with Luther long enough to understand how he thinks how he works and I think Gray has put that seed of doubt in his head through their back and forths together that. Now he's thinking, okay, John's finally gone off the rails and somebody needs to stop and, it. And this was an okay. easy case and you and you did it your way, not by the book. So so let me I ask this because I wanna it. I wanna I wanna devil's advocate this for just a second and see if anybody buys this. Okay. Go I'm not saying it. I believe it, but Go for it. is there any chance that the whole thing from the fist fight and everything was a long game on Ripley's part to set up Gray with the confession that he gives at the end. I actually had that exact thought. I did not buy for one second Ripley turning on um, John. I, I, I can, I could buy them being angry. I can buy them fighting amongst themselves, but I could not, I can't see that, especially after the, 
the the first part of series two, you know, where what they went through together. Yeah, right. I, I think mean, that's, re- like, that's like a war bond. And I, I don't know if you've seen War Buddies, but there is nothing you can do to get one to turn on the other. No, but I think at this point with with. To that effect, you know, the last thing Justin wants is to see John go down and he's doing what he can to make sure that doesn't happen. But it's like John keeps to to Justin's perspective, keeps maneuvering himself into a position where that's going to happen. So he's got that emotional baggage that he's got to carry along with doing the job. And I think I think it does. It gets the better of him to the point where Shank has to lay down the law to, to John to whatever it is, end it. You know, he makes it very clear. This is my house. Well, and, uh, without without jumping too far ahead, though, the 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 fact that he finagles them and gets them into the I need legal um, protection and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't know. I, I'm just thinking maybe it's a it's a long long game approach, and he's just really setting up Gray to uh, um, play it all back at her face. I thought so too. Like, and when I was watching, I was like. Oh, this is sneaky. Ripley's playing both sides, and he's outsmarting, outsmarting them both. And th- there's been some sort of off, off-camera conversation, and 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 Ripley's learned how to do a John maneuver, in a sense, and that th- he's going to flip the script. I, 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 I'd love to believe that, but that's not what I saw. No, yeah. and when I saw that he needs legal protection, the way I read it was. Um, if Stark moves now for right or wrong, he's going to fuck up the case, the serial killer case. Yeah. Right. Cause John will be not on it. Right. right. So he's stalling for time. And, and as we find out, Georgie boy is, uh, he's a bit of a drinker because at one point gray walks in and finds him passed out on the carpet with a bottle of hooch in his hand. And, we figure we start to see more of of Stark's warts, and at the same time, when Gray goes back and meets with Justin, he says the same thing he says to John after he bails him out with Shank's computer in season two. I just want to make things right, whereas he had told John, "I need to make things right." You know that I think is still the overall driving force of everything Ripley does is he wants to do things the right way, and. He wants to do, but also understanding he wants to do right by John. And I will say, I can't quite remember exactly where this is, but it was pretty clever of Gray to give John a pretense. For well, yeah, when they first when they first meet up, or no, second time they meet up in the parking garage, and she kisses Justin in the Jeep oh, because yeah. she realizes Luther is looking through the window. You know, and that's when that leads to Luther calling her up after she leaves the after he leaves the house and says, you and I have to have a very serious grown up chat. Well, no, remember, because um, uh, Shank chews him out first. Yeah. No, he does. But I think that's the point where Luther, who understands something else is going on here, just aside from, you know, with with Justin having seen Gray around. You know, he said to Shank, you know, she's not my biggest fan. And yeah. that puts him in a position where she he gets to confront her head on. And I kind of like this a lot because it shows that while Gray does not like Luther, 
she respects his ability because she knew that he's going to figure out they're conspiring, right? Like, and so she gave him a probable and frankly believable. Right, but even when he confronts her about that, she still is. She still downplays him, even though she understands what he's capable of. She still thinks she's so far above him in terms of intellect and how she's going to approach it that she still thinks she's so sure she's going to trap him. Well, and, and she and she gives that big smile at the end of the parking lot conversation, like you know, you we both came off real real tough with each other, but I've got you. I'm going to mm-hmm. get you. Yeah, I'm gonna get you. Yeah, because she has Justin in her pocket, and you know he's 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 on board as far as far as she knows, and you know she she she's got Luther dead to rights. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, you know Luther has to go back and figure out what how to stop this guy, Paul Ellis, and that's when we start to find out that Paul is getting his inspiration from somebody else. And it's this old man in a nursing home who's in a wheelchair with an oxygen tank. And he's very much fits the moniker of a creepy old man. Yeah. Are you guys aware of Harley Quinn's origin story? Yep. Yeah. I knew there was going to be a Batman reference at some point. Yeah. So so go ahead and go ahead and play that refreshment uh, right now, Sean. Hit me. Um, so uh, Harley Quinn was uh, the uh, Harleen Quinzel was the psychiatrist assigned to the Joker, and um, there, during the process of you know psychoanalyzing him and trying to figure him out, it goes the other way and his madness rubs off on her, and then she becomes Harley Quinn. Gotcha. Mm. Okay. And it's kind of the same sort of thing. Yep. Suicide Squad, be damned. And. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, you know, Luther finally figures out that they, he goes to the estate and tries to get um, get a better understanding of this old man. When he gets there, he walks in and, you know, asks the nurses and says, oh, well, the guy that visits him just walked out. And we have that point where he Luther walks in, holds the door open. Yeah. And Paul just walks on out. So he inadvertently lets him get away, but he understands now that he's got a, an angle to try and trap him by going through this old man, Carney, who is an unabashed predatory sleazeball. And he gets it from the moment they start talking where, you know, we start getting into his MO and how he was approaching everything he did. And he doesn't even refer to women as human beings you know he says flat out well if you can't have steak you have to settle for hamburger he sees them as meat Mm -hmm. which is just just despicable and the other thing and I think Luther weaponizes this is this guy what he's got months a year maybe left in his life yeah there's nothing they can do to him like practically speaking like it's like a Hannibal yeah. Lecter that's already in prison. All you can do is get the information from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and he, he had done, and he had nothing. done twenty five years already. Well, also, I think he weapon, a Luther weaponizes this because he he knows that he has nothing left to lose, so he plays to his ego to get him to gloat. Right, and in order to do that, 
you know, as he did, the the problem is that he's still looking for that right angle. You know, he can bring him in, but he, it, everything's not lining up. So what does Shank do? Shank has everybody in the department going through every case file, going well, anything. Give us if you find anything that looks out of out of place, bring it to us. And they finally find the angle, which I did appreciate. I like the fact that this didn't sporadically come to Luther as we'd seen before. Yeah, this I agree. Some mm-hmm. brunt work. So yeah, it, was, it was like it was like actual investigation, actual yeah, police work. Not, and it, not <laughs> oh, I, I read the next page of the script, therefore I know. Yeah, and it's all hands on deck except for Ripley, who's still off trying to figure out the cast angle. And he, everybody digs in, and they find it finally in, in the uh, name April Ellis, who was a prostitute that was murdered in 1980. They didn't tie it to this old man Carney, but the mo fits. And well, then they do you find out the, uh, the 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 detective liked him for it. Yeah, uh, and then they find out as they go further into the interrogation that Paul saw Carney kill his mother while he hid in her wardrobe. Um, yeah, that's kind of and, what I was getting at was the Harley Quinn thing. And yeah. We haven't mentioned Mary. No, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But, you know, Carney's explanation of all that, and, and you see John really boring into Carney, saying, you know, what did you do to this kid? I mean, can you imagine just how, you know, and, and you, you, you know, you took him and you twisted him, and Carney's answer was just as non-humanizing as it was when he was explaining why he killed those women. He said, look, he was a mess when he came to me. All I did was shape the clay. He formed him like a golem into something that you can turn and direct at other things. And I was like, man, that is just so twisted. Yeah. I didn't buy necessarily this young boy who sees his mom being murdered. Now, at the same time, Carney says something to the effect of that she's not like she wasn't when we when we think of mother we think of you know obviously somebody caring nurturing whatnot it sounds like that wasn't the case so her being brutally you know I guess tortured and murdered that was at that particular moment it worked for that young boy like ooh mom's dead it you know everything that like your the way in which the world works it, you, you you would think oh this kid's just gonna be just messed up but not go to that length so it seems like he was obviously very broken before this and then that yeah. that trip wired a whole new uh methodology and, and think tank well and carney alluded to it and what it did was i guess if i remember right what what turned Ellis from being somebody who wanted to exact revenge on Carney into something that Carney could manipulate was, and he told John flat out, he goes, I told him how fun it was. And, and, and again, I mean, I have, and I'm very glad I don't, I have no frame of reference to what it would be like for any young person to see their parent be killed in front of them. But I mean, I, doubt any of us would disagree with the idea that that is a traumatic experience and i think the the lasting repercussions of that when you're and they don't really necessarily say how old he was when it happened but he figures probably you know like somewhere between like nine and 13 years old you know that's going to be such a formative event for you and they said that he didn't when he came to carney he like he barely talked mm-hmm 
you know, where it had such a, a shattering impact on his psyche that he went mute, which explains completely why he doesn't say anything through the whole bloody episode. Both of them. Yeah. He doesn't say a word. On a scale from Leave it to Beaver to Dexter, I'd give it about a nine. Yeah. Yeah, it's much more Dexter than 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 Ward Cleaver. You know, and this ultimately sets up where, you know, where he sends Paul last or where Paul goes last, which is. And, and it comes to John as they're wheeling old man Carney out of the station and he sees the look he's given the nurse who's attending to him and goes, oh, well, of course, you know, you've got to be able if that's you've been ogling these these nurses all the time for somebody of his demeanor well of course he's going to sit there and, and want to look at him and go oh well I, I let's deal with one of them too and when John goes right at him even as they're trying to wheel him out and calls him on it and Carney congratulates him and says but I think you're a little late and what they have to do is get over to the nurses who we had seen when John walked into the uh, the nursing home they're at their place and there's somebody in the wardrobe. This got a home. little. This got a little bit by the weirdly scripty numbers. I, I was like, wait a minute, why do they? They're all together. I mean, it just got weird for me. I was like, eh, how are you getting here? Right. Well, yeah, I think, and, and and of course, old old houses, you know, have the generically timed banging of doors all the time. Like, yeah. I don't think it's hot. That's that's not a house settling. Yeah. That's that's you know something else. But people tend to rationalize. And I one thing I want yeah. to mention is I kind of like the Palpatine Vader vibe you get from like an old frail uh, mm. mm-hmm. mega mm-hmm. evil and a big strong the apprentice. Yeah, Sean, you don't want to go with a Batman Beyond Bruce, old Bruce Wayne young guy there. Uh, do you see freaking Batman Beyond? He ain't he's old. No, but he no, ain't frail. I, I, I was just trying to give you a Batman reference. That's all. He's feeding you. Uh, <laughs> hey, speaking of putting things... As, yeah, maybe you guys aren't as close as I thought you were earlier. Uh, yeah, well, let me just say this. Speaking of feeding and putting things in your mouth, um, again, creepy level, uh, and I would say this goes to creepy level, volume 10, is mm-hmm. I'm going to take all your toothbrushes and put them in my mouth. Yeah, that was just... I mean, yeah, off the chart creepy. Yeah. Yes, beyond. Yeah, I, I would put that up there almost with the Lucian Burgess tongue flip, though, <clears throat> in terms of creepy, because that <sighs> was just. Yeah, I'm like, I don't even want to think of what degree of mental checkbox that that ticks. Um, but yeah, it, it ultimately comes down to he gets two of the three women who are there. And the third one comes home, and of course, when he goes up to confront her, she's brought home a guest, and it's John. And and I know, Jason, you had alluded to this, or no, Eric did, where this was not hard to figure out that this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And now we come to my biggest complaint of, the, of these two episodes. Yep. You're going to confront a serial killer? You're a police officer. Bring a freaking gun. Yeah. Except as far as I know, the British police force, most of them aren't allowed to carry them. Yeah, but I think I'm going to go confront a serial killer who's about to murder people. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he's standing there with a freaking 
what is it like a dowel rod or like some curtain rod? Of metal? I think. Yeah, no, it was a mop. Oh, a mop. Yeah, a it was mop. a mop. Seriously, we know he owns a gun. Yeah. Right, but that was his dad's gun. I don't yeah, think that would have looked well in the police report if he said I shot him with my dad's gun. Really? I'm going to confront the serial killer who has murdered several people and is wildly dangerous, and I decided to not bring a mop. Right, but <laughs> here's the crazier thing, that when he gets the knife away from Paul, and Paul still, I mean, at this point, all he's done is he shouts at him as he tries to attack him, but he gets the knife away... And rather than rush John and try to get the knife, he launches himself out the window. You know, yeah, I mean, you, you can kind of see that coming. The way they framed the shot with like you know John standing off to the right and like the windows did. wide open. The windows wide open. I'm like, there he goes out the window. Right. But, but I'm glad that he didn't die when he hit the ground. That he's still alive and he can still, I guess, go stand trial and, and whatever. They, they like they like conveniently wrap up like, oh, he's dead. Oh well. And I can kind of buy that because they've made him, right? They've figured out who he is. Um, mm-hmm. Even if he gets out of this situation, right? And, there's not going to be, you know, there's not going to be much left. And yeah. Eric, I'll say, I did I did agree with you that they did frame it that way, so you, it did make sense when it happened. But they have been playing with angles and camera angles all episode, or the two episodes, and so it wasn't guaranteed. It, it did... <laughs> Telegraphic, but it wasn't completely guaranteed because I like expect- the, the fact that there were a lot of angles. I was expecting him to tackle John out the window, like yeah, yeah and, I, and, I, and I kind of way he was standing there, kind of way yeah. he was standing there with a knife. You thought, well, maybe he might stab him too. You never know if he comes at him, but then he, you know, mm-hmm. went out the window. Well, and well, I, w- I thought, you know, in you know, basically with <clears throat> especially having Ripley and this whole investigation over top of John. Now this guy has zero to do with that. Right. But him jumping out of the window with really no witness scared me to death because I'm thinking to myself, this guy just made John look like some sort of murderer. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it it becomes all circumstantial, like a he said, she said, now realizing that that wasn't going to be the case. But it, like it, it, it puts me on pins and needles for John at all times, like everybody's watching you and you're doing and you you let this guy do this not that he had any control over it you know he was holding a steak knife i I think confrontation with a murderer gives you a lot of leeway in the um well it does go back to being by yourself even if john threw him out the window that would have not been invalid he was fighting for his life yeah well, he, well, if he it didn't take goes, gun, he should have took backup, right? I mean, that was the yeah. other thing. Yeah. It, well, it also goes back to the first scene of the first series of Luther where it's like, oh, just, you know, the, the criminal just, just kind of, oh, he just fell down and killed and almost died. Like, right. Well, here we go. Here we go again, John. Yeah. And then another guy kind of just fell down by himself. Yeah, that's yeah, a, sure, that's John, a little right? interesting, a little quinky dink. Everybody that goes around John ends up flying out windows. Right. And you have that moment where after the police arrive and Shank comes out and he's looking up the window, you can see it on Shank's face. There's that look of, oh, crap. Yeah. You know, John, please tell me that you didn't launch him out that window. You know, and, and mitigating the circumstances, I mean, you have two women who are bound and, and taped the chairs down below. Brutally who taped. Is in peril. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah, he wasn't kind about it. And, you know, you have all that stuff. I, Realistically speaking, would John have been penalized for it? I doubt it. You know, but... 
to your point, I am glad that when, I mean, yeah, he went out the window, went through a greenhouse, it should be noted, and is in bad shape. But he's going to be, he was arrested and taken into custody, so it wasn't another, you know, dead body on John's right. docket. That's, you know, that's, that's that's what made it okay for me. I was like, oh, right. thank goodness, and, and, guys. And honestly, I mean, that's how I figured out it was probably, you know, a couple months after season two was at the end of it when they went to arrest him and you see him down below and he's trying to get up and his face is all bloodied and everything. You see the steam coming off of him from that. I'm like, oh, that was an interesting touch. They didn't have to put in there. But I'm like, but if if you know anybody who, you know, during that time, I mean, blood, when it's in a cold environment, you get that effect. So... You know, I just I thought that was a, an interesting touch to wrap that one up with. So, you know, we do need to wrap up the B plot, and then as as Sean alluded to, we do have a C plot we got to get to as well. And the C plot is Miss Mary Day, and that starts in a bit of the of an unexpected fashion, where John had been on the phone with Benny talking about the A plot case when. He's not paying attention, and a car gets out in front of him, and they clip. And he gets out, and there's a woman there, and they're trying to explain what's going on. And and John says, you know, don't worry about it, my fault. Didn't see where you were going. And Mary's trying to be nice and, and all that. And it ends up leading to them starting to meet. How did you guys uh, how did you guys receive Miss Mary Day? I think it was good in the fact that we needed Luther to be happy about something again. And that was way okay because, you know, for two seasons, it's been a progressional, you know, downward spiral. And now there's been, I guess, enough healing of relationship wise for him that maybe something good can happen to him. And credit again to Idris Elba's acting. Like you could tell he was smitten with her. Right yes, away. like, and it wasn't like doing the wolf eyes or anything. Right? It was subtle, but it was <laughs> the wolf eyes. <laughs> no, wolf eyes were definitely not on display. If anything, what I really liked about this this part of it, I liked the awkwardness of it. Mm-hmm. I liked how you know you could see there had been enough time for John that he was willing to go along with it and, and follow it along because as as Mose pointed out yes he seemed very intrigued by her and the discussions that they had over the phone about you know what John's name what Luther's name means um, and them trying to you know meeting and talking over coffee and I guess they were up all night the first date and how and they alluded to it in the preview between episodes where she says to him, you know, but you're such a gentle man. And he's sitting there and he goes, you know, I, I'm, I'm really not sure about that. Yeah. You know, you see the apprehension there. And again, full credit to Idris Elba for not for not overplaying that, but finding just a pitch perfect note of it just to be like, you know, I, I I'm really this woman is is really intriguing to me and I want to know more about her, but I'm still a bit guarded and I'm not sure how to to really kind of get myself there and does he deserve it yeah all we yeah, need I'll, now I'll is for my... all we need now is for her to leave him for mark 
Oh. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, I'll, I'll put my I Miss Alice fan card aside here and say that I agree. I think it was uh, well done. I mean, I, I really enjoyed the, the interactions and the phone calls and, like you said, the awkwardness of it. Um, it's, it's good to see Luther happy, but I, I do miss Alice. Yeah, I, I do like the point where they're, you know, where they're on the phone and she... <clears throat> She asks him to go out for drinks after he had just gotten done uh, roughing up the loan shark. And, you know, Justin's sitting there trying to hack the laptop and he takes the phone call and she asks him, you know, you want to go have drinks? And he's like, sure. Yeah, we can go do that. And they hang the phone up and he's sitting there and he kind of takes that breath where he's like, well, that that actually happened. You know, my like, favorite was, call, you know, call back or not. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it, and I, the organicness of that. Where it wasn't just, you know, John meets a woman, woman immediately falls for her or for him, he immediately falls for her. Immediately, you know, advance eight spaces to heavy duty snogging. Well, it also you know, gets we, you uh, an idea of what it would be like to have to negotiate a relationship with John or any uh, anybody in his position where, you know, my time is really odd. We might meet up at midnight on the top of a building and that's the only time I have available. So if mm-hmm. you're okay with that, then we can move forward. I also appreciate the fact that in the first two episodes, we did not get a full memory dump from John over the previous two seasons to Mary. You know, that could have happened. I mean, you know, you put it in any other writer's hands, they might have said, well, we need to spend five minutes of that coffee conversation explaining all this so she understands just all the the broken points he had and what he's trying to do and all that stuff we don't get that is he keeping secrets i don't think he's keeping secrets i think he's he's just he's playing it out you know where where he doesn't you know it's not necessary to to just bombard somebody with all that and and i know how hard that is personally from my own experience of when you meet somebody who you become romantically interested in, but you have all that baggage to not go, oh, by the way, thump, and you yeah. drop all of it. You know? Let me tell you how my friend killed my wife while yeah. she was in the process of leaving me. It's not exactly first date material. <laughs> and how my best friend is somebody who could probably end your life with a needle in your ear. You know, uh, Alice isn't going to like this. At some point. Yeah, yeah. Alice is yeah, not well, going to like this. Yeah, or if you want a second date, it's probably not the best thing to start laying on somebody. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I I am very again, as Moe's alluded to, I'm hopeful for this. And and how and and Neil Cross, with everything he's given us so far over these two and a half seasons, to think that he was able to go to this point with this dynamic and not be as heavy handed as he could have been or as dark as he could have been. And given John that ray of hope, you know, I, I give him credit for that because he didn't have to. And I like how he handled it. I mean, do you guys agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, it was it was just just right. Not too much, not too little. Mm-hmm. It so, felt it felt small but powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to wrap this up, we have Ripley finally putting the end of the Jared Cass case. You know, he goes and arrests Barnaby. Before he does, though, when he pays him that second visit in the hospital, explaining that he found his hand and he knows what's going to happen to him, he does ask Barnaby, you know, when, you know, did Luther call you 
you know, he's he's he asks the question of Barnaby to say, okay, did Luther tip you off to do this? He wants to find out whether or not John broke the rules. And to Barnaby's credit, he's he completely lies bald faced to Justin and goes, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, what what just go away, you know? And and convinces Justin that no, Luther did not have any role in Barnaby doing what he did, even though we know. And I think for Ripley, that little moment helps kind of set his needle on his moral compass back towards center to go, okay, maybe Gray and Stark have gotten into my head a little bit more than I wanted them to. Did I completely miss something or? Um, I think. John didn't. John just told him to come get fingerprinted. I don't remember anything with John. No, John did not instruct Ken Barnaby to put his hand in a blender. He didn't do that. But he did tell him that he had they had the fingerprint on the SIM card. Yep. And what? But I think, he did that in the police station in front of everyone. Like he was on the phone. Well, that yeah, he went in. Well, no, uh, Luther went into his office and called him. So there, he wasn't in the he like wasn't in the crowd when he did it. He went into his office and called Barnaby and told him, you know, we got your fingerprint. We got this fingerprint off a SIM card. Can you come on in and give us your print so we can check it? I thought he yeah. called him in to clear his print so that they wouldn't mix him up with any other prints. But right, and and that's what spurred Barnaby to to get into his hand in the blender. And for Ripley, it was when he when that happened because we had seen him pop off on John and punch him you know he wanted to get confirmation from Barnaby because John denied saying that he had anything to do with with what Barnaby did which is what spurred Justin to hit him you know he said did you know he was going to do it and and John's like I don't know what you're talking about and that's when the fight ensues so Justin goes to Barnaby and says did he call you and tell you to do this and that's when Barnaby's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, okay. So it was, that gave Justin an out to say, okay, well, then maybe Luther didn't force that to happen. In all fairness, Luther did not tell him to go cut your finger off and avoid evidence. No, he did not. He absolutely did not. But again, with how Gray and and, uh, Stark see everything that John does, I can't imagine it was all that difficult for Justin again with with Gray and Stark in his head saying everything that he does is it's just so not what a police officer is supposed to do so it breaks so many rules is this this, was that point the point where then Justin made the decision to on 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 recording say all those things the good things about John see this is where I'm, I'm almost with was it I think it was was, Jason you said it when when this was the long game like this is where I thought oh here's the twist he's been working him the entire time but it was it was actually that moment that made Ripley want to defend uh, uh, John rather than caving in on him Mm -hmm. I think it's that carried over with everything that he had seen in all their initial meetings together because Justin's been questioning what Gray and Stark were doing and all the evidence they said they had and all this stuff from the get-go. 
you know, but it was gray and stark, especially trying to force, trying to force a, a square peg into a round hole of convincing Justin that John is dirty. And when it finally gets to the point where Justin comes back in and gives his statement that, you know, we we finally get the, the brass tacks of it from his perspective, but not before that little soiree is broken up by John with a little bit of help from Benny. And it took me a minute to figure out how he pulled this off because there is no point where John goes to Benny and says, hey, can you track this number for me? I think it came from the point where when John called Rip, uh, Gray up to have that conversation at the parking garage, that's when he gave it to Benny and said, hey, find out where this number goes. And Benny gives it to him. And when he walks in and first sees Gray and then sees George and they have that eye to eye and Justin realizes he's there and comes out from behind the door frame, that moment where you get. And I loved the delivery on this where Idris Elba just looks at me, shut up, Mr. Ripley. You might just spoil my good mood. That's the first time he hasn't referred to him in Justin, as Justin the entire length of the show. And when he goes and grabs all the evidence and walks out and stops and looks at all of them and then looks at Justin and just the utter disappointment on John's face. It was the Etu Brute moment. There. Yeah. It was just like, oh. And and you can see it on and full credit to Warren Brown. You the way he plays it when he walks out and he just sinks into the chair. And it's that look of, oh, what what the fuck did I just do? Yep. What did I do? And it isn't until John's in his car and he's driving away and he plays the recorder and he's waiting for it and he goes, Okay, give it to me. And then you get Justin's statement about John. And then that look that John gives in the car where it he does a complete 180 in the span of five minutes where he had was so sure he was writing Justin off that Justin had, had completely backstabbed him yep. to, oh, my God. Well, all evidence pointed to that. I mean, it was not an unreasonable assumption to make given the situation. No, it wasn't. But again, I think it was something that emotionally was played pitch perfect yeah i kind of linked that to the um the first part of season two where like ripley came through despite mm-hmm. the dubious situation mm-hmm. right and he was like mate right like it kind of linked me to that moment where ripley came through yeah like that's what he does ripley comes through so or thoughts even... on on what would happen would have happened if john hadn't crashed the party with ripley giving that statement they had some evidence but I don't think enough I mean if they had enough evidence to move on them they wouldn't have even bothered with Ripley's statement right mm-hmm. right so I, I mean I, don't, I mean yeah. I guess they would just be continuing to try to gather evidence yeah at least now that Ripley signed the whatever you know immunity agreement then he's basically off the hook either way like he, he's not gonna get in trouble or penalized so that they have to go look somewhere else or try to quote-unquote frame him or try and get him to trap himself some other way yeah right. so, yeah they were going to interview him about 
every case that they've been on, starting with Alice. And I guess this would have led to a further investigation or like, like, all right, John's now we're pulling him off the force until we can, you know, go through all these cases. But it would have just been a long drawn out process that obviously would not have any drama to them whatsoever. It would have become red tape at best. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think in order to understand how much of an impact it would have had, had Justin sold John out, I think we would have had to have seen more of the conversation. You know, we we get the allusion to episode one and Alice and the home invasion and her parents and all that stuff. But I think it would have they would have had to to delve deeper into all that to give us a little bit more of of explaining just how much trouble John was going to be in leading into the final two episodes of this season. Well, and right. But if he if he hadn't if he hadn't interrupted him, then the statement that Ripley would have gave would have defended John. And put them in a bind if they ever tried to use it as evidence, which they would have had to do because they had the legal statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it, it, it's an interesting thing to consider. Yeah, because I was wondering like how it was so easy for like John to like walk out with the evidence and the recording. And like if they really had him dead to rights, they would have stopped him any way they could. And then later, yeah. when, when, then later when they play the tape and it's like, oh, Justin stood up for luther well that's why they let him go because basically they, they had at that point they had no case their start witnesses was gone they had sketchy evidence to begin with they had nothing so well and as had, john they, points they had, they had out walk. as john points out to stark you know he's you can come at me if you want or you know the way things are right now how are you going to explain this to your uppers that i walked in and cracked your clandestine operation to catch me and walked out with all your evidence you know who are you going to tell he, he basically plays chicken with him. It's okay. Who are you going to tell there, George? You know, because I can tell my people and I know my people are going to back me. Are your people really going to back you now? You know, and, and that's what he gives them the threat of. You can come at me, but I'll take you down twice as hard and twice as fast. And remember, he had just been exposed to Ripley's loyalty to John. Mm-hmm. Right. So because uh, Stark knows what Ripley said. Yeah. And knows that he's not going to get someone to turn on him. Well, in fact, it, like yeah, it, it it solidifies Ripley because you think from from the point zero to now, you were convinced that eventually Ripley would turn on him. That he's been given every chance. Now John knows for certain, for lock, stock, and two smoking barrels, Ripley is his partner and is solid as a marine. Yeah, yeah. and and. Uh, I think Stark knows that Shank now has the evidence to push back and rip him up. Yeah, it's going to be, you know, we still have two more episodes to go in this series, and we know this isn't over between Stark and Grey and Luther. If Stark goes really rogue, this is going to get real. They have to fight. I I just don't see it any other way. Like, Luther's going to, somebody's going to get punched. Mm -hmm. And as if... Given the way Luther has been behaving lately, like the show, I wouldn't be surprised if we never see Stark again. Mm-hmm. I just, I could see that. Just, I don't know. I think he's still got one more card he can play. What it is, I don't know. But I think there, he's got one more card that he can play out. And I think what we're, we're going to find out over the last two episodes is which, whatever card that is. Again, I don't know what it is, but we're going to have to see. But as if things could not end on a brighter note for John when he gets back to his flat, 
he gets there and finds Mary waiting for him. Although, again, it's a very awkward conversation the way this starts because she comes up and yells at him. And he's like, wait a minute, what? And then she kind of backsteps and goes, sorry, I, I was just I was trying to be funny. And now you then get that awkward interplay between the both of them where John's like, OK, you know, and he's in a good mood and obviously he doesn't want to run Mary off. And you get that very quick explanation of Mary saying, look, you know, I'm old and I'm tired of games and I don't want to deal with the same usual crap you get when you go and date somebody and John's like yeah me too so what do you want to do and they both decide that the only winning move is to just get on with the snogging and that's where we leave it so again we find John and this is not the first time we've done it leaving him for now at a high point so prediction time boys where do we see the last two episodes going? And I suspect, if you have, you've probably already seen the trailers that were at the end of this episode for episode three. If you can take that out of it for a minute, where do you think this is all going to go? So I purposely avoid those trailers myself. Good boy. Um, well, kind of these first two episodes was such a good encapsulated, like, quintessential Luther story, right? Mm -hmm. That I could see it going literally anywhere after this, right? Um, as always, I want to see more Alice, and uh, I could... I really want to see her react to Mary. Well, it seems like le like Mary is now what... She was the C-plot, but she's going to be become like that, that running thread through the entire series. Because we've I mean, we're done with the other two. A and B are done. Well, yeah, I can see her moving. Well, B is, is B easy. really done? I don't know. Is yeah. Hmm. I kind of think B is going to ramp up now because basically John's kind of given the you know Gray and Stark the finger and walked off, and they're probably beyond pissed. So it's like, are, are they going to now start crossing more lines to become like him to try to catch him? I see that as, being as more of a curious. series four thing. Like they bite. I don't know that. I Come on, Jason. You don't even want to make a prediction. Your predictions are so sound. Do it. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna tank the whole thing here. Um, <laughs> I, I'm gonna go similar to that, and I'm gonna say that you know it. I think it's gonna be the the continuation of Stark and and um, Gray. And what I'm really interested to see is how Gray ramps up because now that they've been burned how far outside the lines is she going to be willing to go? And I got a feeling we're going to find out that she's going to become much more Luther like than she ever set out to be. Exactly. So there's my, there's my yeah. All right. prediction there. Um, okay. And I'll, I'll cap that off by saying that these were definitely my favorite two episodes so far. So, well, and I was just going to allude to that. I know, I mean, we've seen a couple of these now we've been through two and a half seasons and there have been some highs and some lows. And in terms of, of what we've seen so far, how would you guys all, all rank these two episodes by comparison to yeah, what we've I, seen so far? I totally agree with Jason. These are these are these are the strongest. I mean, every I'm not saying they're not good, but like there's something about in the way structurally the writing was a lot tighter and mm -hmm. visually <clears throat> leaps and bounds tighter. Yeah, I I agree that these episodes are the best, but they're not my favorite. 
simply because they like Alice and nothing without gotcha. Alice okay. my favorite. Uh, yeah, totally. Eric, what about you? Yeah, I mean, it's been like three or two and a half seasons now. So, you know, they're, they're in the rhythm that they've got, you know, they're, they're writing, you know, that they've got it down. Everybody's, you know, firing all cylinders. Everything's moving along. So, yeah, I'm curious. Yeah, like I said before, to see if Stark and Grey kind of get more Grey, quote unquote, you know, in their attempt to take Luther down. And Mary's probably going to hang around just because, you know, John's got to have something nice happen to him and stay happen eventually. So hopefully this is it. Yeah, I, I'm with you guys. I mean, I agree with Sean. These are not my favorite two episodes. I, I spoke last episode about my unabashed joy of the final two episodes of season two with the twins. I thought just in terms of, of that story, it just it ticked all the boxes for me. Um, that said, I like the direction that Neil Cross went in with this start of this third season going in different directions and branching out a little bit more. I like the fact that Mary is not Zoe 2.0. That's something I really like. I also like that she is not an avatar of Alice. I like that we have our understanding of Alice's relationship with John, but the perspective of there being something new for him. Now, obviously, the tension that that's going to bring together, we may find out very soon how that's going to pan out. Again, I'm not conveying anything. But... Yeah, I think with with they found their stride enough as actors, as directors, as writers, that now they're really in their groove. And I'm very interested to see how you guys take the next two episodes of this season and where it goes from here. So on that note, we'll call it good and close this portion of the casebook of Luther. And as always, I want to thank my fellow comrades, the Broken Boys, Philip Moselak, Eric Scott, Sean Shibley, and Jason Johnson. If you like what we're doing, leave us a note on iTunes under the TV podcast for the Broken Boys. Love to get your feedback. Love to get your input on this. We will talk to you again in a couple of weeks as we wrap up Season 3 of Luther. I'm your host, Devin Higgins. Been fun. Talk to you then. Bye. Stop.